Welcome to the very first episode of Pomposity, hosted by me, Mike the Lummox. I want to take a minute before we get into the topics that we're going to discuss in this episode and just introduce myself. I am a lifelong tech nerd. I work for a large software company, and this is what pretty much what I dream about all day, which is pretty lame, pretty lame. But I've been working in tech my whole life. I've developed mobile apps, some of them kind of stupid, some of them a lot more serious, like in health tech. And I made this podcast because I wanted to make sense of the tech news and big business news so that you can understand what it means for your life, where you might want to focus your career or your next venture, or even just where you want to put your monies uh, for investing. What stocks did you pick? That's what we're going to talk about. We're going to start this episode by sharing some news on Peloton. They acquired a company, Precore, that's going to help accelerate their business. We're going to get into that in the next section. But the majority of this episode will focus on antitrust claims and the validity of those claims against the big four tech companies, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, and Google. And I have come up with my own imaginary scale called the antitrust guilt scale, which very clever, to assess how guilty each of them is in terms of being anti-competitive and having legitimate antitrust claims against them. So thank you for listening. Leave a review. I would love to get your feedback. All right, so first thing, let's talk about Peloton. They had some pretty big news yesterday. They acquired Precore. Precore is a fitness manufacturing company that manufactures fitness equipment for hotels, gyms, um, college campuses, probably apartment buildings, and others. They acquired this for $420 million, and I'm going to tell you why. This is actually a pretty big move. I'm not going to say that this is a baller move, but this is pretty big for them. Number one. Right now, Peloton has more demand than it can handle, mostly, partly due to the pandemic, which has accelerated their growth. I just ordered a Peloton last weekend, and I have to wait eight weeks to get it. I'll be getting it in February, so hopefully I can stay in shape till then. Eight weeks. That's a long time. I mean, what is the last thing you ordered that took eight weeks that wasn't, you know, custom made in, in another country, right? Like like custom made suit or something might take that long. So that's part of the issue, right? That's probably, they, they know that they have a, a logjam of orders that they probably can't fulfill, or people are like, you know what? I heard it took me, I heard it took people a long time to get their Peloton, so I'm going to go with some cheaper alternative that I can get today. That's number one. But the real, the real uh, strategy here, the real big, big strategic move here for Peloton is that this will allow them not just to increase their manufacturing capacity, but to have those ex- leverage those existing relationships with all of the all of the clients that Precourse served, including gyms, hotels, college campuses, apartment buildings, to put replace those machines with Pelotons, probably discounted Pelotons, and that's not necessarily going to pad their bottom line. But what will is that the users who use those machines will now probably sign up for a Peloton membership, a subscription that costs $40 a month. And if you know anything about this, you get unlimited classes, live classes, recorded classes. You can 
compare yourself with your friends. You could video chat with your friends as you're riding your Pelotons together or walking together on the treadmill. Um, and that is a differentiated experience for, of course, for the user, for the person who chooses to use the Peloton, but also for the gym that needs anything to make themselves less of a commodity. Think about it. If, I, if my gym has Pelotons and my users are signing up for Peloton memberships, I have something that makes the cost of leaving my gym just a little bit, a little bit harder to do. It makes it a little bit more sticky. For Peloton, this is a high-margin business, right? It's just subscriptions. They're already putting the, – the fixed costs are already there, right? Put together the classes, have the software. So the more they can sell, the better. Imagine having uh, an average of 25 subscriptions per bike. That's, that's the real move here. And so you know, Peloton will start to convert a lot of their revenue from, from manufacturing and hardware-based to actually more, more – uh, subscription and software based. So I'm excited for Peloton. I'm excited to get my Peloton. And I actually bought Peloton stock, which I made a little bit of money on, although it's a little bit down today. But I still think that this company has room to grow because their margins are so high. And you can't just copy what Peloton's doing. One of the things that makes them different is is that they have this network of users. This network of users is not something that, you know, Nordic Track can go and just get, right? I mean, they, of any company, might be able to do it. But if you were just if you were just a bike manufacturing company today, you couldn't just replicate what Peloton's doing. And that creates a little bit of a moat for them in this industry. So kudos to them. I'm excited to see what happens. All right, now let's talk about antitrust lawsuits all over the place and accusations and finger pointing between the big four tech companies. And I'm going to try to keep this more succinct than usual because there's so much information. I actually recorded this segment before and shared it with some people and they said, you know what, there's a lot in there and that's it's great, but it's very information dense. So I'm going to just keep it a little bit simpler. Basically what I want to do is go through each of the big four's cases and how guilty are they in terms of anti-competitive behavior. I've come up with a scale, the antitrust guilt scale, which is totally imaginary and made up by me, but I'm going to share my logic with you and go through each of them individually. First, a little bit about antitrust. A lot of this is, being, is stemming from image problems that the big four are facing in light of misinformation being pushed by Facebook and Google because of their ad-driven revenue model. It's coming to light because of companies like Fortnite accusing Apple of, uh, of abusing their App Store transaction fees. And it's coming to light because primarily, as these companies are doing these things and, and collecting all of this power and, and heft, they're growing like crazy. I mean, the amount of market cap that they've added is insane. Just this year alone, all of them are over a trillion dollars in market cap, except Facebook, which is in the 800s range, far bigger than any social media company. And 98% of Facebook's revenue is ads. I, I, I've never thought that a company that only has one 
basically one revenue stream could be that big, but they have 2.7 billion monthly active users. So I strongly believe that the big four are really dealing with an image problem that has, that has funneled itself through a anti antitrust claims and accusations. There is some antitrust accusations that are legitimate, but they the reason why they haven't been levied until this year is because the image problem has finally caught up with them. And they've been able to parry those image problems for a long time because guys like Tim Cook, who are so lovable, and Jeff Bezos, who, well, I don't know if he's lovable, but certainly respected for what kind of business he built. And Sheryl Sandberg at Facebook, of course, you know, just leaning in. And so now I think we're finally seeing that all catch up. And because this is a bipartisan political issue, we want to see big tech more regulated. We know they're growing like crazy and there must be some kind of anti-competitive behavior in there and some legitimate legal way to slow down their growth. So that's where this is coming from. Now, a little bit about antitrust. When we think about antitrust and monopolies, we often think back to the stuff we learned in school about Standard Oil, John Rockefeller, the Vanderbilts and the railroads, J.P. Morgan. And those companies were just buying up competitors like crazy because they wanted to own the means of production. And essentially, the consumer harm was they could control prices, right? If you own the entire, if you own all the market share in an industry or an inordinate amount of it, you can control prices. The difference between that and today is that that's not what's happening. I mean, in Apple's case, kind of. In Google, maybe a little bit. But for Amazon, we're not paying more for things. We're paying less for things. So that's not the consumer harm. What the government will try to prove is that there is consumer harm from stifling innovation and from reducing consumer choice by basically making it so that no competitor can realistically compete, whether by using their money, just the the sheer amount of cash that they have, or other things that make it difficult, like hoarding data. And so I'm going to go through each case and give you a final score and, and also go through exactly what, what the, what, how they do business in ways that might be construed as anti-competitive. All right, so let's first start with Google. They're currently fighting three lawsuits from states and the federal government, and <laughs> it's not looking good for them. I mean, they're certainly certainly fighting back. They're certainly counter, making counterclaims to everything. But I think one of the things, just before I get into Google's case in particular, is that when companies are the size of Google, you can't just look at basic business transactions the same way that you would look at them in any other context. Because what normally could look like a shrewd um, business deal, when you're talking about companies that are trillion dollars and growing like crazy, everything amplifies is amplified and further cements their position as as the dominant force of the market. And so I'm not necessarily saying that they shouldn't be able to do that. But what I want you to do is just ask yourself the question, is that, is that anti-competitive? And so let's get into this. In particular, the cases revolve around 
how Google has cemented itself as a dominant search engine and how it's taken over the online ad advertising market, basically. So the search engine dominance, one of the main claims is that they pay Apple $12 billion a year to be the default search provider on all iOS devices, of which there are one and a half billion. Now, let's think about that. Let's just talk about that for now. They pay $12 billion to Apple. So let's see. The most valuable company in the world has a deal with the largest search provider in the world to provide search to their users. Okay. And and to this, Google says, well, it's, it's not anti-competitive because users can easily change it if they want. They can change their default browser to another browser. But that begs the question, why pay for it then if users can easily change it to Google, Right. And so the, the thing I want you to think about here is could that's an absurd amount of money. Could another search engine provider actually even hope to pay $12 billion cash? No, of course not. Is that possible? Nobody's that, that big, especially in the search place. So is it anti-competitive? Not sure. Like if that was in another context, in another industry, maybe it wouldn't be considered as such. Now, I want to focus now on online ads. This is little convoluted. I, I've tried so many ways to come up with a great explanation for this. And here's the best analogy without getting into too many of the nitty gritty details. Imagine that you owned an auction house, okay? You own an auction house. Your job is to connect buyers with sellers by doing your marketing so that you could attract buyers and then you host the auction and you get fees, right? This is how Google runs its ad exchange, which is a place that does automatic bidding to place ads around the internet. This is called AdX, short for Google Ad Exchange, okay? Now, if you owned an auction house, right, you're, what would make you a valuable auction house where people would choose to use you is your ability to place the most amount of winning bids with with the buyers that have the most money to pay, right? With the most amount of buyers. So the more the more inventory you have to auction off and then the more buyers there to buy that inventory, that's what makes it valuable on both sides, right? That's why you would come to an auction. It's the same thing for Google's ad exchange. Now remember, there are other ad exchanges on the internet. If you are looking to sell your ad inventory from your website or if you're trying to buy ads as an advertising firm, you can use other ad exchanges. Now, let's go back to the analogy. There's a reason why Google's ad exchange is much, much more valuable and nobody can really get away from it. Whew. So imagine if you owned this auction house and it was very successful, and then you decided to start auctioning off your own products in the auction house. Now there's a finite number of things that can be auctioned at any given time. And there's a finite number of buyers willing to pay for those auctionable items. So you bring your own to the table. Well, now what happens? You have all this additional inventory, so the other inventory is, is less, <laughs> less desirable by itself because there's just simply more of it, right? And secondly, you have a vested interest in getting your inventory in the auctions auctioned off that's what google's done they've combined ad x into or rather they've combined the inventory of 
AdSense, which is their own wholly owned ad network that places ads around the internet into AdX. So nobody could get away from it now because you it has the biggest reach and it has the most buyers of ads. Companies have reported, and I forgot where I heard this, but I read a report from a credible news source that some publishers have, um, publishers of like websites have tried to, just as a test, just to try to stop using Google AdX and revenue went down like 40% in a day. And they obviously panicked and went back to it. So that gives it an edge, a distinct edge over other ad exchanges that are only acting as neutral parties and taking a cut of each auction, each, each successful ad placed. All right. So I think that's really the crux of it. I mean, the other things that are being levied against Google are, well, in their search results they're promoting their own products, like a lot of video results will come up as YouTube and there's stuff like that. But I really think that the most egregious thing is how they've how they've manipulated their ad 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 power, online advertising prowess um, to basically combine two entities that shouldn't be combined in AdSense and AdX. So what is the verdict? The verdict is a 7.5 out of 10. So they're guilty. They're not the guiltiest you've ever seen, but they are guilty. And the reason why they're guilty is because if you're operating an ad exchange, any kind of market that connects buyers and sellers, if you participate in that market and you make all the rules of the market, that's anti-competitive. There are too many conflicting interests there. You can't be an auction house and and auction participant, very simply. I think that the claim regarding their, you know, their deal with Apple is probably not, I mean, it is anti-competitive in a sense, but maybe not in the legal sense, where I wouldn't think there's a legal precedent for that. But, you know, you could definitely see why Google and Apple might want to review that just for the optics of it. I think the optics of it are probably what's most damaging to Google. Not that it's actually, it's actually should be illegal in and of itself. Um, and then as far as promoting their own stuff, you know, that's one of the common themes you'll see across the, when we talk about these other three companies, you know, they're going to, Google will say, well, this is our search algorithm and that's proprietary information. We can't share that with you. Well, then how the F do we know that you're not serving up preferential results? I mean, sure, like, sure. I mean, YouTube is probably the best video site, but can we honestly say that it didn't become the best video site in part because Google promotes it? Eh, we won't ever know until we see the algorithm, which they don't want to share. And that is something that needs to be looked at. So I would say as punishment, Google needs to spin off AdX as a separate entity. And if they don't want to do that, or somehow that's not possible, they should be forced to open up their ad networks to all kinds of, all kinds of advertisers on, Google, on Gmail, on Search, on YouTube, and, and on mobile apps and any other property that I forgot. That would piss them off. But... That would also, they would still make a, a crap ton of money as the middleman and for the fees for doing that. But they wouldn't be the middleman and the one gaining, generating most of the profits. One of the claims against Google is that they, their ad exchange charges more than other ad exchanges because of how dominant it is. And that's anti competitive. So 7.5 out of 10. Let's make them change something about their business practice. 
Okay, let's talk about Facebook now. So Facebook is the other one that actually has um, federal lawsuit against it right now for antitrust claims. Amazon and Apple are being investigated, so I'm sure they're forthcoming, but they are not there yet. So what are the claims against Facebook? Primarily, it focuses on Facebook's acquisition of Instagram in 2012 and its acquisition of WhatsApp in 2014. Basically, the FTC is saying, hey, you did this to take competitors out of the market and become the dominant social media entity that you are. You need to roll back those acquisitions and make those independent companies. That's the crux of it, right? There are some other things, but that's really the, the, the bulk of it. So let's analyze that. Back in 2012, which may as well be like 30 years ago as far as the internet, Instagram wasn't really a competitor. It had a, it had a popular and a kind of addictive mobile app in the social space. And Facebook wasn't very strong in mobile. Another thing, Facebook was losing a lot of young users at the time. They, they were struggling, and that's why you know a lot of people, especially teens at that time, were just leaving Facebook. They didn't want to be a part of it. I think that sort of happened. Like Once their moms and grandmas got on there, we were like, okay, okay, like we need another place to go to hide from you. you know? And I think around 2012, that's when Facebook hit like critical mass in terms of popularity. And Facebook didn't have a strong mobile play. I believe that Instagram was a strategic foray into mobile more so than it was taking a legitimate competitor off off the market. Remember, Instagram had less than 20 employees when Facebook bought it and had no revenue. So they, of course, they saw the potential, but nobody could have foreseen that Instagram will become this behemoth that it is today, which is 200, I'm just guessing, but it's at least $200 billion, you know, if you had to put a value on it. Now, before we get into WhatsApp, the one thing that is sort of sketchy, I guess, is that in a lot of emails that uh, the FTC is, is talking about, when, you know, the, the discoveries they did, they find a lot of emails from Mark Zuckerberg saying, uh, basically, just making mentions of removing competitors from the market, right? This wasn't just when he was trying to buy Instagram, it was also when he was trying to buy Snapchat. And... So they're going to try to say that he had intentions and he's always had these intentions of just eliminating competition. Now to that, I say, okay, it doesn't look good, but look, I'm not, believe me, I am not a Facebook lover or defender, but in this case, I think it's possible to acknowledge that something is a strategically important acquisition, but also that it is a it is removing a competitor like it can be both right i mean instagram may not have been a competitor at the time but it may have become one now that may have been the secondary reason why facebook wanted to buy it or not a really a reason at all but it's certainly okay to acknowledge like yeah it also takes a competitor off the market you know even though it's not your primary reason but they're going to try to force that narrative the ftc is to try to um prove guilt here now let's talk about whatsapp whatsapp I and look, maybe I'm just small minded and please, you know, find me on Twitter, Mike the Lummox, if you think so. But I just I know that they're tangentially related. Certainly if you're talking about mobile as an industry, mobile apps, okay. But as a social app, not social. I mean WhatsApp, sure, you could you could SMS people and, and it's a great SMS alternative, but it's certainly not a substitute to social media, right? When I want to go to social media and get really angry on Twitter, I don't go to WhatsApp. And so is it, 
it, did that help them take a competitor off the market? I find that claim very difficult to justify. And of course, now we know what Facebook actually wants to do with WhatsApp. They purchased customer a couple weeks ago, customer with a K for a billion dollars. Um, it's basically a customer relationship management software. They're going to use that technology to turn WhatsApp into a business messaging service, especially in developing countries, because WhatsApp has 400 million monthly active users in India and Brazil. They have a lot of users in Indonesia. They have a lot of users. It's very popular abroad, but still not a social play. So I hesitate to say this. I know that we want to make Facebook suffer for being a, a a Thanos to society, right? And for sowing discord across America and the world and for damaging our democracy. And we should absolutely find ways to do that by regulating them, by forcing them to submit to regulation. And it's funny because if you look around the internet now on certain sites like Bloomberg, Facebook is sponsoring their own ad saying, it's time to update the internet or whatever. And like, we're in support of updated internet regulations. Like, yeah. It's lo it's lovely that they want to get out in front of it so that they could be the ones who or orchestrate what those regulations are, right? Because they know it's inevitable. But nonetheless, we're talking about antitrust here. And not liking Facebook doesn't mean they were anti-competitive. I would even argue that compared to Google, in, in light of what you see with just what we talked about with Google, you have viable alternatives to Facebook. You could go on Snapchat, which is a $70 billion company, which Facebook did try to buy, but they didn't. You can go on Twitter, which is a $45 billion company. It's hundreds of millions of monthly active users. You can go on TikTok, which just their U.S. operations alone has been now we know is at least $100 billion because of Walmart and Oracle. <laughs> Weirdest acquisition, non-acquisition ever. I don't know what's happening with that. Um, there are legitimate alternatives and the other thing is that you can pull yourself away from Facebook. Try pulling yourself out of the web of Google on the internet. It owns the internet. Gmail, Chrome has 50% of US market share for web browsers, YouTube, um, even Android and search. I mean, 92% of search queries go through Google. You can't rip yourself away from that. I mean, my company uses Gmail for business. You know, I couldn't if I wanted to. But Facebook, you could. Now, you might say, well, I can't because they have such a strong network, you know, of 2.7 billion people that I can't. Okay, but that's not anti-competitive that they built a strong network. That just differentiates their product and therefore you choose to use it because it has obviously superior qualities to competing products, which means you choose to use it. But that's not, that's not drowning out choice or competition. Those other companies need to find better ways to attract more people. So anyway, what is the verdict on the antitrust guilt scale? I give them a five out of 10, which is not guilty. Close, like you're pushing it, but you're not guilty. You're okay. Um, just, just chill, right? And, and watch out, because we're watching you. So no changes, but updated regulations, absolutely. We need to stop this crap now. All right, Apple, Apple, the most valuable company in the world, two trillion two hundred seventy billion dollars. Last time I checked today, just announced, by the way, that they want to get into electric vehicles, which 
I really don't understand. I, I mean, look, I get like Tesla stock's been absolutely insane for reasons that I really don't understand. But really, I mean, like you're going to invest all that capital and tooling and stuff and for cars, which is known to have a really shitty margin. Anyway, that's not the point. That's not the point. But Apple, let's talk about that from an antitrust perspective. So whew, there are no actual lawsuits against Apple. It's not federal or state lawsuits. Epic Games, with the maker of Fortnite, did file a civil lawsuit against Apple for antitrust. And it was basically around the transaction fees that Apple charges in their app store. So if you don't know, when you publish an app in app in iOS, anyone can do it. You have to pay some money, sign up for some things, whatever. I've done it before. It's kind of a pain in the butt. When you do it, you are forced to have all of your transactions, any transactions that users of your app do have to be done through Apple's payment services and they will take 30%, 30%. Now, that kind of makes sense if you're selling like a d digital hammer or a cloak or whatever they have on Fortnite. Don't laugh at me for that. I don't, I've only played it like once. But it doesn't make sense if you're selling e-commerce goods and, you know, like whatever, anything you'd buy on Amazon. 30%. You can't take that off the top. That's crazy. But even for companies like Fortnite, remember Epic Games, all of their revenue, which is, I don't know what it is now, but it was over $2 billion about a year ago. All of it comes from these in-game purchases, right? So even for them, that's kind of a lot, right? I mean, there is a lot of development work that goes into creating new stuff all the time for people to buy and then keeping the game, maintaining the game and everything. So 30%. And Everything about Apple in terms of antitrust is focused around this. And you have to think back to when the App Store came out, right? This was a game changer for, this, for society. I mean, this singular invention, the ability to develop and publish apps to users changed our lives. But what's happened is that as it's changed our lives, only one company owns the distribution of those apps, at least on iOS. The other one is Google and Android, which is pretty much 100% of the market. They own the distribution. They own, they own the railroads. This is how you get your apps. You have to go through us. And for that, we charge a tax. And our tax is 30%. Now, before I even get into the ways that Apple has so blatantly and egregiously abused this privilege, just think about that. If there was a truly competitive market out there for something would anybody pay a 30 percent fee for the privilege of being served by apple no nobody would i don't care how good your payment services are it's not worth 30 percent of my transaction price value no matter what and this is this is like you know when we have cable companies right there are certain agreements they have where they can't just charge whatever they want, right? Because there may be one or two or only one in a certain area. Apple doesn't play by those rules. I mean, this is no different than like Vanderbilt and the railroads. I mean, just charging tariffs. That alone is alarming. Now, let's think about certain ways that Apple has abused this that we kind of probably know about. In 2013, now this is from the New York Times, they did a, an analysis on how Apple delivers search results in its app store. In 2013, if you search for music, 
the first result would be Spotify. It makes sense, right? I mean, Spotify is, you know, the most downloaded music app, streaming app, right? The most popular, sure. It's for sure the most, has the highest uh, customer satisfaction rating. Fast forward three years later. If you search for music in the app store, the first result would be Apple Music. Okay. I mean, I guess maybe whatever their algorithm uses to determine what should show up first, maybe it decided that Apple Music should be the best based on a fair system that is totally not rigged in their favor at all. Okay, sure. Yeah, okay. And Spotify would be fifth. All right, okay. You could still find it, I guess. Whatever. Let's just, whatever. We're going to ignore that. Fast forward another year later, and if you search for music, you wouldn't find Spotify till the 23rd result. And what's worse, what's the slimiest part of all of that, is that Apple would make you scroll through up to 14 of its own apps before you saw anything related to another publisher. So... Think about that experience. You're scroll, you're searching for music. You probably know you're looking for Spotify. And Apple makes you go through 14 of its own apps that are not even related really to music before you get to a different result. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly possible that this all happened because your algorithm knows what users want and what their preferences are. And, and it just decided that that's what users were actually searching for in that moment. It had nothing to do with the fact that you might benefit from that. Okay, sure. And Apple did say that this was an algorithmic choice, that its algorithm decided to group results together by publisher. All right, now I'm going to break mold here. Do you really think that they had no idea that even if that was an algorithmic choice, that whoever decided that the algorithm should should uh, prioritize that, do you think that they didn't know that this would inordinately benefit their own apps and discovery of their own products? Of course they knew. Come on. They knew. And to that, they said, well, this isn't... They wouldn't even admit that they were correcting an error by changing it. They just said they'll review it. And of course, they won't be transparent about how the algorithm works. It's proprietary, right? In response to the New York Times, they also said, well, we don't have... We don't like... We don't have an analytical trends on like prior you know, search results history. So we can't comment on that. Yeah, bullshit, bullshit. But okay, sure, um, sure, why not? So here we have someone who has a marketplace. Again, a marketplace, just like Google. And they participate in this marketplace. But not only do they participate in this marketplace, there are no other marketplaces within the app store. I mean, within, sorry, within iOS devices, you have to choose their app store. There are no competing app stores. There's no way that publishers be like, you know what? I'm not gonna use your app store. I'm gonna use a different app store that users can also find on their iOS devices. That's not there. So you charge 30% because people don't have a choice. And then you push your own products through that app store also, because you control the rules of what that app store delivers to users. Yeah, this is pretty, this is pretty egregious and, and slimy, sketchy, whatever you want to call it, anti-competitive behavior. There's no doubt about it. Apple can play the nice guy all it wants by saying, ooh, we don't hoard users' data, and, and we don't like, act like a menace to society like Facebook does. But 
this is menacing in its own way. Now, in response to Epic Games suing, Apple then sort of preemptively reduced its its um, App Store transaction fees by half to uh, publishers who have less than a million dollars of revenue. Okay. I mean, you still get to decide what is fair or what is not fair. You decided based on the kindness of your own heart that 30% was too much, 15% is more reasonable for these smaller guys, right? It makes you look good, but come on. That's that's small potatoes for a company like Apple. Now, the real thing, the real thing that gets me is that it has been reported that Apple has a sweetheart deal with Amazon, sort of hush-hush. So if you remember a couple of years ago, if you had an iOS device, you couldn't shop directly on Amazon app. You had to go to their website to actually purchase anything. You could just look at items there. Remember that? Remember that? Well, I'm sure Apple seems like they figured out they were losing a shitload of money from that, from all of the shopping that could have taken place on Amazon app. And they have a deal with Amazon, supposedly, to charge them a lower transaction fee for purchases made on the Amazon app. It makes, I mean, and I don't, the validity of it, it, Apple denies it, but if you think about it, it makes sense. You think Apple wants to lose all of that revenue? And even for Amazon customers, do you think Amazon wants them to have that kind of broken shopping experience? Of course not. It wouldn't surprise me at all if this were the case. But now you have the most valuable company in the world having a sweetheart deal with the third most, val- most valuable company in the world to give, bo- to give each of them preferential treatment. If that's not anti-competitive, what is? I mean, this is, the, this is an open and shut case. And so for that, I give Apple a 9.5 out of 10 on the guilt scale. There really is no way to slice it. The New York Times report was damning. And I think we all know that Apple Music is not as good as Spotify. And that's just one of the products that they're pushing through there. The other thing is that, you know, Apple, Apple Plus, right? I mean... <laughs> This is another thing that they're pushing. They're just trying to get more subscribers for this, um, for all of their services, right? So they can just, because they like to be in control. And so they could go to their investors and say, hey, looky, we got this many people on, on Apple Plus, um, even though they're paying $7 a month. But another question is, could you only charge $7 a month for streaming service? I mean, Netflix charges, what is it, 13 now for some of the, for the package that I pay for? $13 a month or something like that? How could you get away with only charging 7 well, part of it is because you you monetize it by selling hardware, right? You're not trying to get people to pay much. You're not trying to make money off of your streaming. That's just a way to get people um, t- tangled into your web so you can have them buy more of your other products. Now, that pales in comparison to the App Store abuse. But 9.5 out of 10, this needs to be dealt with immediately. And the other thing, because Apple's been doing this for so long... Google does it on Android now. They're like, well, shit, why should they have all the fun? So there's essentially a cartel between the number one and number two smartphone makers in terms of what they will charge apps or publishers. Pretty, pretty insane. All right, now lastly, Amazon. Okay, Amazon. Not a lot of talk really about how they've been anti-competitive. And I think that goes back to the image issue, right? This is an image issue for, for big tech. This is not, this wasn't something that came about because somebody was abhorred by their business practices. This came out, all of this, this negative energy and animosity towards, 
towards big tech came because of just how alarmingly big they've became how much dominance they have over our lives i mean you can't avoid amazon i don't i, I love amazon i love you admit it you don't want to you don't want to pay more money you want the cheapest version you cheap ass person it's okay i am you we're we're brethren in that way but how has amazon if you're actually just being fair to them and looking at them through the lens of antitrust how have they fared so like Google and Facebook and Apple, Amazon operates essentially a marketplace, right? And I say essentially because they do have AWS, but that's a big moneymaker for them. But we're not going to focus on that, right? The, the, the core of their dominance is around Amazon.com as a marketplace. And Amazon, if you don't know, charges fees to third-party sellers to come onto their marketplace to sell their goods to consumers. Amazon takes a transaction fee for all of the, everything they sell. And it also has optional, but really you kind of should do this fulfillment center option so they can use Amazon's fulfillment center to deliver things to you fast, right? That's why most items you can get pretty quickly. So basically they'll ship the items to Amazon. They'll have them in inventory. Amazon will ship them out when somebody buys them. Three ways Amazon makes money from these people. And that's fine. In exchange for that, Amazon does its best to provide a great customer experience so that users are there to buy things. Now, where does this get a little hairy? So it has been reported and the EU or sorry, the European Commission, rather not the EU filed antitrust suit against Amazon, claiming that it took data from thir its third party sellers on basically like what products were most popular, everything, all sorts of data that we that the public wouldn't know about. Right. So abusing they're kind of saying they're abusing their position to get access to data that really should be private but amazon and this doesn't surprise anyone amazon uses the data of their sellers to determine what products to make for themselves i mean and that that just makes sense that takes all of the risk out of it for them see what other things are hot make it yourself undercut the price make make the other make your your own sellers or the other sellers irrelevant and this is exactly what has been accused of Amazon, that some sellers have said that they've copied their products down to the color palette and undercut them. And then they even remove the buy button off their listings. How did you buy something without a buy button? I don't even know. But imagine if that were you and you're a small business and you already have low margins because, you know, people are cheap like you and me. And yeah, you are. Hey, we both are. It's okay. And then Amazon removes the buy button. Of course, people are going to be like, well, I guess this thing isn't for sale. I'm going to go to another listing. There's millions of them. And a lot of them will land on Amazon. Now, that if that's true, and there were a couple examples given in that case, that's obviously an abuse of power. But since it's not, since it's just a couple of anecdotes, I'm not going to give it le legitimacy yet. And I'm just going to focus on Amazon participating in its own market, which again is a common theme. They have a market, they control the rules of the market. And they are participating in that market. Well, obviously, they're not charging themselves transaction fees or seller fees to even be on the platform or any fees for that matter. And as a matter of fact, Amazon doesn't even need to sell products for the same price as anyone else because Amazon makes a buttload of money from Amazon Prime before you even spend a dollar on Amazon.com. 
So all of that gives them a pretty strong advantage. And they can just decide whenever they want to change the rules to effectively, you know, just drown out competitors or, or small sellers who want to be on there. I mean, even big brands sell their stuff on Amazon.com because they have a, a pretty compelling buying experience. And I think that's pretty much the bulk of the claims. I mean, the other things I would say about Amazon is can being too big by itself be anti-competitive. I mean, we looked at Google. They're big enough that's dropping $12 billion a year to Apple is no biggie for them, right? Amazon is big enough that it can it can just swallow entire industries when it decides to make a move into something. I mean, Amazon's announcement that it would start delivering prescription drugs was, was scared the crap out of Walgreens investors and CVS investors. And, you know, like maybe those industries are ripe for disruption. But, but in Amazon's case... They don't need to monetize because they're monetizing everything through Prime first. Prime gives them that that blanket of cash that makes up for any margin losses on anything else. And so even if even if a product is a loss leader for Amazon, which I'm sure that it isn't, I'm sure there aren't, um, it really doesn't matter because they'll still make money in the end just by keeping users loyal to their platform. And the way they do that is by offering a lot of different things like Amazon Prime Video uh, and Amazon Music and now podcasting, which they're going to start offering. And so if Amazon decided to do anything, it could potentially disrupt other industries because they don't even need to make money from it. And so I I have a hard time saying that that is anti-competitive, but I think it's a question worth asking, can being too big be anti-competitive? But if we're just focusing on how they participate in their own marketplace, I would have to give them a 6 out of 10. Guilty, but not guilty enough, right? And I think I think what we need to see here is not antitrust lawsuits, but again, like just like Facebook, I think we need to see regulations about what you can and can't do when you own a, such a marketplace. Because... One of the big core tenets of antitrust is stifling innovation, right? And when you're that big, nobody can grow bigger than you because if they have to use your platform because you have the most dominant platform, well, you're never going to let them grow as big as you and they can't possibly do it, right? Because they don't have the same advantages as you because you don't charge yourself transaction fees and you know you could do everything for a lot cheaper than them because they have to pay things that you don't. And so it is anti-competitive, but perhaps just not quite enough. I think Amazon needs to be regulated. And we need to think about as a society what the unseen costs are of not having innovation um, around us. Because it's hard to imagine loss for something that didn't materialize, right? When When a great new service or company didn't come out because it couldn't. You don't see that as a loss, but that's that that's the harm to consumers. I just think it's hard to prove. I think more likely than anything, Amazon will just be forced to uh, probably change its practices and be a lot more transparent about its policies and really, really take any decision changes like, uh, you know, consider them through how the public would view them because we're going to be watching from now on. So six out of ten. Watch out, you're almost there. 
So to conclude, one of the questions I asked you to think about to yourself was, can being too big be anti-competitive by itself? And I think if you haven't had a chance to think about that, let me just ask the question differently. Forget about antitrust. Forget about the legal construct that is antitrust, which has a long history in this country. Just ask yourself this. Can being too big be bad for society? Because I think when we ask the question that way, it's a lot easier to say yes. And I'll give some examples. One of the damages, one of the downstream effects of having companies that are this massive, and this goes beyond just the big four tech companies. This goes for basically every industry out there. They're all consolidating the ones that aren't winning. Um, the ones that are winning are just being swallowed up by companies that stand head and shoulders above the rest of the competitors in that space. And basically, most industries have a duopoly or an oligopoly that are running about 80% of the market share in that industry. Now, what does that do for innovation? If you ever thought about starting a business, if you ever wanted to be one of those people, you know, let's say an Adam Newman, right? who has a cozy deal with SoftBank and gets a ton of money and lives large and is able to, you know, see him, see himself become the God that he thinks he is, or even just taking advantage of distressed industries right now during the pandemic, travel industry and airlines are distressed. Well, wouldn't you want the opportunity to be able to capitalize on that with your own venture? You know, it used to be a viable thing that people could do. You could go and start a business. Now, despite all of the news you hear about venture capital investments and IPOs, it's really not viable. You shouldn't have to start a business using venture capital money to be successful. And so bringing it back to companies being too big, what does that do for wage stagnation? When 80% of the market share in an industry is, is gobbled up by two or three companies, do they, do they really compete for employees or do employees compete for the limited spots they have? Remember, they have all the jobs. They get to decide what you're worth and you don't have a lot of options. I mean, the job market is a market with, based on supply and demand, just like any other economic market. And the other thing I want to ask you is because these tech companies in particular are so good at, at gobbling up other industries just because they want to expand a little bit or keep a little bit of user loyalty without ever fully intending to monetize those? Are we better off having services that are truly differentiated, like Spotify, like Netflix, like Airbnb even? Those are services that exist with a singular line of revenue. They exist because they're good at what they do. They have a compelling product that we want in our lives. But that puts a lot of pressure on them to be up against a $2 trillion company or a $1.5 trillion company or whatever the case is. They exist because they produce content that we want. Amazon Prime exists because they want to sell us more shoes. Apple Plus exists because they want to sell us more iPhones. Is that better for us? Is that not 
a form of stifling innovation because if it weren't for the great people behind Netflix, if it weren't for the great people, the great minds behind Spotify, we would all be listening to Apple Music and we would all be watching Amazon Prime Video because they would be, by default, the best options out there. Not because nothing better could exist, but because that's simply the best that can exist given how much money is behind them. And that's where being too big can really be problematic. Airbnb has is not been taken over by Google or anyone else. But if you think about it, Airbnb just runs software to connect home renters with travelers. That's an easy play for a large tech company to get into. Easier than electric vehicles, Apple. But fortunately for Airbnb, they will be insulated from this for a time because big tech companies are going to look at health tech and education tech as their next big plays because those represent the largest markets for them to take over, healthcare in particular. But Airbnb validated this market by by showing a $100 billion valuation post-IPO. So now that we've concluded that, hopefully some good food for thought, let's get into two predictions for 2020. 2021, rather, since we're almost at the end of 2020. One, I believe that, I think this is obvious to everyone now, there is a bubble, a tech stock bubble. And we are living in that bubble. And we are making money off that bubble, assuming that you have a 401k or some type of investment. And if not, you really should think about it because it is just crazy. Now, I understand that the end, the pandemic has accelerated certain businesses. I understand why Shopify and Amazon will be blowing up. I understand why Peloton will be blowing up. But I don't understand why Tesla would be blowing up. And I don't understand why Snowflake would be blowing up. I mean, Snowflake is an interesting company. They have about $400 million in revenue. Really, though, it's probably about a billion or somewhere a little less than a billion because they can't recognize revenue on purchases made by their customers until they've actually used those units. So figure about a billion. But they're trading at 100 times that. I mean, they have 158% net retention rate, which is... Basically, if they have $100 and they lose $10, but they gain $20, their net retention is 110%. So 158% net retention is is a is pretty incredible number. But still, 100 times revenue? So enjoy it while it lasts, but diversify your portfolio. Not a professional investor, not a professional financial advisor here, but I am diversifying my portfolio to hedge against the inevitable bursting of the bubble. I don't think it'll be as big as 99, 2000 bursting, but it'll be big enough that you will want to have some diversification. So look at, re- look at REITs, look at everything else. Again, this is what I'm doing, not a professional. All right, second prediction. I mentioned Spotify and Netflix. I think they are going to tie the knot. By the end of 2021, Netflix will be in talks to purchase Spotify because, because their spaces are getting crowded. Now with Disney going full force on streaming, really taking advantage of its, of its various assets to create the most powerful streaming company in the world, and Warner Media, Time Warner, going all in on releasing all 12 of its movies next year into HBO first at the same time as they, as they are released in movie theaters. They're making streaming video plays, and they're going to be pretty compelling, and consumers are going to have more choices. 
Not to mention with music streaming, Amazon just released its own Amazon Music. There's Apple Music. There are there's if Google ever gets serious about it, there will be a Google option. Both of these spaces, as much as Netflix and Spotify have brilliant minds behind them to create compelling user experiences, addictive user experiences, the best user experiences, they're going to have a lot of pressure on them. They don't have the financial heft of those companies. I think they need to merge Netflix to acquire Spotify. It would be the most differentiated, top-of-the-line user experience for all things streaming. It would inoculate them, keep them as a market leader for five maybe seven years. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. I would love to get your feedback, so please leave a review. Or you can talk to me at Mike the Lummox. Thank you, and I'll see you in a week.